Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, leaving the CPP. We believe Alberta's proposal could cause serious harm over the long term to working people and retirees in Ontario and across Canada. Ontario is calling for an emergency meeting of the country's finance ministers, worried about the impact of Alberta's proposal to withdraw from the National Retirement Scheme. Coming up, we will speak with Alberta MP and Federal Minister of Employment Randy Boissonneau about the controversy. Also, as the fighting between Israel and Hamas continues, Human Rights Watch is calling on Israel to open up its borders or risk committing a war crime. And... We've seen clear evidence that higher interest rates are moderating spending and rebalancing demand and supply. The Bank of Canada holds its key rate at 5%, but when will it start going down? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Ontario is adding its voice to Ottawa's expressing concern over Alberta's proposal to pull out of the CPP. Ontario, as a result, now calling on the federal government to convene an urgent meeting of the country's finance ministers. Our government firmly supports the Canada Pension Plan and we believe Alberta's proposal could cause serious harm over the long term to working people and retirees in Ontario and across Canada. And I believe my federal and provincial counterparts would agree with this. Our view is that CPP's collective and uniquely Canadian approach benefits all workers and their families. The CPP's greatest strength is its pan-Canadian approach that provides stability for workers and for families. Well, with his thoughts on the debate, we're now joined by the Minister of Employment and Workforce Development, Randy Boissonneau. Minister, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Michael. So here we have Ontario now calling for an emergency meeting on CPP. And as we listen to, to the province speak out, I'm wondering from you, what impact would Alberta's withdrawal have on the plan? Because, you know, to hear it from Danielle Smith, her province's withdrawal would only cost the plan about an additional $175 a person to maintain it as is. So let's step back and talk about how great the Canadian pension plan is from a beginning. And if I go back to my first mandate, one of the things our government did was stabilize CPP for a generation. And when I surveyed my, the people in Edmonton Centre, they said the best thing we'd done, and that was including the Canada Child Benefit, the fact that we stabilized CPP for generations to come, they really appreciated that. And, and I've heard that ever since. Now, I think the Ontario Finance Minister asking for an urgent meeting just shows how real uh, the threat and the anxiety is that Danielle Smith has caused and by throwing a year-long process into the air to have uh, Jim Dinning take a look at uh, taking Alberta out of the pension plan. I'm an Albertan and I, I can tell you, Michael, I talked to a 20-year-old guy in my riding, Scott, who works at Peer Leader and has done so for nine years. He knows his pension date. And he said to me, Randy, tell me that CPP is going to be secure for a generation. And the Premier's numbers are off. The Life Work Report's numbers are, to quote one person, bonkers. And if you take a look at Trevor Toomby's analysis, economist out of the University of Calgary, 
it would cause, it would cost uh, Canadians about 300 to $350 per year per person uh, in perpetuity should Alberta decide to take itself out of uh, the pension plan. Now, the early numbers in the consultations that are taking place in Alberta show well over 90% of people don't like this idea. I've got almost a thousand emails and letters now saying, please, Randy, tell the premier, hand off my pensions. And uh, I think it's really serious. And I absolutely have no idea why she's doing this, other than perhaps it's a distraction from her bad decision to stop renewable investments for six months, which has scared away about $12 billion. Maybe another 20 will leave the province. And so if this is just political sleight of hand, it's really not cool because we've got seniors and younger people nervous in Alberta. And now we've got this echo across the country of people nervous for the Canada Pension Plan. Okay, but you know, I, I hear what you say when you say the majority of Albertans are not on side with, with pulling out of CPP, but it's early on in this process. And really to hear it from the Premier, there is a possibility for Albertans to lower their premiums along with high payouts. So what type of argument is your government going to make against those type of claims? Well, that's a great question, Michael. And in the letter that the Prime Minister uh, sent to the Premier, he was clear that he had tasked us all as Cabinet to do everything we could to uh, protect the Canada Pension Plan, to defend Albertans. And so we're going to do that work. I spent some time as Associate Minister of Finance, so I know that you know finance officials will be crunching numbers, so will officials at the CPP. Uh, and I think that's a good time for me to talk about, Michael, how CPP is completely separate and independent from the government, whereas AIMCO, which is the agency that manages the pensions in Alberta, has in their statutes that they have to respond to directives from the Premier's office. And if you talk to Alberta teachers, they know what that's like because the funds from the Alberta teachers' pension were taken by the government to make questionable investments in oil and gas companies that didn't turn out well. So if you want stability, if you want better performance, and you want something you can rely on in your retirement, then it means staying in the Canada Pension Plan. So I think this is going to be you know, tough on Albertans. It's going to be, you know, Canadians are going to wonder what's going on. And I just wish the Premier and her colleagues would be focused on things that Albertans really care about right now, which is housing, making sure the middle class can get a break, making sure that we have investments in uh, the green economy, growing up our, our community and our province. And and this to me is a massive distraction that's not going to have the kind of payout she hopes for. Okay, although, you know, and, and I hear the economic arguments that you're making right now, but there, there is a, a, a core, a group in Alberta that like this idea for the very fact that Alberta would be able to stand on its own rather than uh, being closely tied to, to a federal scheme. And, you know, Premier Smith does argue that Alberta has the right to leave the plan and set up its own. Quebec has its own pension scheme. What do you say to the argument for, to Albertans who believe it's better for Albertans to decide their future without being tied to Ottawa? Well, let's take, let's take that uh, question uh, in its individual pieces and maybe in reverse order. Uh, if Alberta goes to a referendum and if Albertans were to, in the majority, say they wanted to pull out of the CPP, there, there would be a process that, be, that would be triggered in the legislation. And then Alberta would have three years to negotiate with the CPP to pull itself out. It's a one-way street, Michael. This would be a divorce with the Canadian Pension Plan and Alberta. And I take very seriously a briefing note that was given to former Alberta Finance Minister, Travis Taves. And at the bottom, I think it is the bottom of page three, it says, we have no confidence that AIMCO and the government of Alberta 
could create a pension plan that would provide Albertans with the same uh, pension income as the Canada Pension Plan and that would cost as little as the CPP does to administer and we advise against proceeding with an Alberta pension plan. Even Premier Kenny, uh, when he got a briefing note to the similar degree, was like, this is a bad idea, we're not going to do it. So I think you've got to go all the way back to Premier Smith's leadership campaign. When she had a very rural-focused leadership campaign, she raised it then. But Michael, Albertans did not have the chance in the general election to talk about this issue. It was not part of the party's platform. There was no airing of this issue. And now we're going to spend a year uh, having telephone town halls about this issue and make people nervous and afraid when there are other things on their plate that they really need to deal with. Now, as you say, this is going to go to a referendum. That is the plan right now. Alberta will study it. A question will go out to Albertans to decide whether or not to stay in CPP or get out. Does the fact that it will go to referendum give you hope or is that a cause of concern? I mean, I, it's not a hope or a concern either way. I hope it doesn't get there. I hope that calmer heads prevail, and I hope the sense of argument and logic, keeping people's pensions safe, and the overwhelming cry of Albertans to say, look, if it's not broken, why fix it? There's nothing to fix here. There is no cheaper plan that's going to give Albertans more money if we go it alone. And look, I'm a fiercely proud Albertan. I love the, our entrepreneurial spirit. I love what we've done in our province. I love that it's one of the youngest provinces in the country. And I also, as a federal minister and MP, value those Canadian institutions that make sense and work. And the Canadian pension plan makes sense. It works. It's part of our identity. And I think you're hearing from Albertans that they think so too. Minister Randy Boissonneau, thank you for this. Appreciate the time always. Thanks, Michael. All the best. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres found himself on the defensive today after saying the attacks by Hamas on Israel did not happen in a vacuum. And while the, quote, appalling attack by Hamas cannot be justified, Guterres also said they cannot be used to justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. That statement made yesterday offended the Israeli delegation and today Israel announced it will not grant visas to UN representatives hoping to get into Gaza to assess the humanitarian crisis. Here is how Canada's Defence Minister Bill Blair responded to the issue. There are, I, I think, important bodies that have that responsibility to examine exactly what's taking place. Our expectation always, and from the very first day... do you agree day, with the UN Secretary-General? Does this government what, agree what, with what that? What I agree, is that I agree with is that there is international law and humanitarian law that applies to any um, battlefield situation, and that every country has an obligation uh, to, to, to abide by the rules, the international rules that exist. And, and there are appropriate bodies to determine if, if and when there are issues around that. But, but, but I believe very strongly that that law should be available. Well, joining us now is Ahmed Ben Shemsi, the Communications Director for the Middle East and North Africa with Human Rights Watch. Uh, Mr. Ben Shemsi, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. Obviously, uh, the eyes of the world are on the Middle East right now, watching what is happening between Israel and, and Hamas in Gaza. What is the concern right now with Human Rights Watch? Well, the concern is that um, humanitarian aid should be allowed in, unrestricted from every side completely. And not just that, 
but Israel should should uh, you know switch back the uh, electricity flick on and they should open the faucet for water because I mean you know the the the, the whole discussion that's been ongoing for the past days was about uh, trucks entering from the Rafah uh, border uh, border crossing I mean the border with Egypt and the, con the whole discussion was about uh, how many trucks is it enough or not enough well, obviously 20 trucks is not enough when uh, an average of 100 trucks came in every day before the hostilities so you can imagine that the needs are way much higher than 100 so what about 20 but the conversation was all about the number of trucks coming in from the egyptian uh, border crossing what we're saying is that why are we just talking about the egyptian border crossing i mean we should also talk about the israeli border crossing. there are two of them and uh, israel should open them as well and we should talk more about simply bringing back electricity and water it's just a switch to turn on and a faucet to open why Israel is not considering that? Because as, as long as they're doing what they're doing, we consider that as collective punishment. It's basically punishing 2.2 million civilians for the crimes committed by a small minority of combatants. That is called collective punishment, and it's a war crime. And beyond that, you also point out the fact that Israel, as an occupying country, actually has an obligation to take care of civilians who are not Hamas, but are really caught up in this conflict. Oh, absolutely. Even without a conflict, uh, even even with, with, before this, this conflict, I mean, Israel is considered as the occupying power in Gaza. Even if Gaza is administered by Hamas, their airspace is controlled by Israel. Their borders are controlled by Israel, so and, and they are under a blockade for 16 years. Their uh, uh, territorial waters are controlled by Israel. Israel controls what comes in and what go and who uh, gets out. So. For these reasons, Israel is still considered the occupying power in Gaza, and therefore, by law, they are required to ensure that civilians have access to uh, uh, basic goods. Uh, and, and as a party to an armed conflict, which is the case now, an active armed conflict, it's been a dormant armed conflict for many years, but now it's an active armed conflict. Uh, as a, a party to such a conflict, Israel must facilitate the rapid and unimpeded passage of humanitarian aid. That includes trucks coming in in sufficient numbers, not just from the Egyptian border, but also from the crossing points uh, on the, ter the Israeli territory. And more importantly, they should again reestablish water and electricity because they can, and it's very easy for them to do so. And by not doing so, they are collectively punishing 2 million people and more, including babies, including civilians, people who are not combated by any stretch of the mind. But they as... Should but but as you know but as you know Israel is concerned about Hamas taking any type of aid that's brought in from Israel and using that for its purposes what do you say to that well, I say that they didn't have that problem before because this is not the first time Israel and Hamas are uh, in active uh, combat. There were at least four wars, uh, if we don't count like the, the low intensity, you know, exchanges, but there were like f four high intensity wars with Gaza during in, in, in the past uh, 15 years. And during each one of them, the Israel, the Israeli army managed somehow to maintain water and electricity supplies and to periodically open its own crossings with Gaza to allow at least minimal humanitarian aid. Why aren't they doing it this time? The, 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 the pretext of Hamas uh, beneficiating from whatever is, why didn't it work before and it's working now? Now, many Israelis, as you know, are still reeling from the effects of the Hamas attack on October 7th. Uh, Hamas has continued its rocket attack since that day. Uh, there are still uh, dozens of hostages that have not made their way back home yet. 
What do you say to Israelis and to Jews around the world who see this as a fight against terrorists and blame Hamas for using essentially the Palestinian people as human shields? I will say that what happened on October 7 is a war crime of unspeakable magnitude and that I totally understand that people are deeply traumatized by those uh, uh, ghastly events, especially since they convoke the memory of, of uh, mass uh, murders of, of Jews in, in, in the history of the 20th century. This is the biggest massacre since the Holocaust. So I can absolutely understand the psychological impact on, 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 on Jews all around the world. However, that doesn't mean that because a war crime was committed by a party, it is okay to commit counter war crimes as retaliation. Uh, this is not how international law uh, international law works. Uh, it, it is not reciprocal. It's not because a war crime was committed that you have to answer that you can answer it by another war crime of arguably bigger proportion, at least based on the number of victims. Because punishing collectively two million persons, that's theoretically, uh, you know, pushing two million persons on the brink of famine and dehydration and death for multiple uh, reasons. So what I'm telling the the, the Israelis right now is. Yes, Israel has absolutely the right to defend itself, but not by disregarding the laws of war. Uh, Israelis should not consider that uh, the right to defend themselves, which is absolutely granted, means the right for revenge, and they should not lose their humanity over that. Because that's what maybe that's what that's what uh, uh, you know the, the gruesome that, that that was the objective of the gruesome uh, uh, murders that happened uh, on October seven. Uh, but let's not give this victory to to, to those murderers, and let's not use our humanity over those barbarous acts. Ahmed Ben Shamsi, appreciate the time this evening. Thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Well, time now to look at the other stories making headlines today. Today we maintained our policy interest rate at 5%. We're also continuing our policy of quantitative tightening. The Bank of Canada decided against increasing its benchmark rate for the second time in a row, as you heard, holding it at 5%. But the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin is leaving the option of future hikes on the table if inflation remains high. The next rate decision is scheduled for December the 6th. Almost 2 million people across the country visited food banks in March. That's a 30% jump over the 2022 numbers and a record high. This according to a new report by Food Banks Canada. Approximately 40% of users are single adults, a third are children, and a quarter are new immigrants. The report states a greater number of people are having trouble paying for basic expenses and more working people with higher incomes are using food banks this year. Senator Ian Shugart, who was also a former clerk of the Privy Council, has died at the age of 66. He had been battling cancer since 2021 and he was appointed to the Senate in 2022. Here now is how Shugart was remembered today. It is with incredible sadness that I rise in this place to mourn the loss of our friend and fellow parliamentarian, the Senator Ian Shugart. He was an incredible clerk to this government, but I know he was also a valuable deputy minister to the leader of the opposition when he was in government. Ian Shugart was my deputy minister. He was a brilliant public servant of both, uh, serving both political parties and serving Canadians in the Senate. And all of us mourn with his family at the tragic loss of this great Canadian public servant. 
Well, let's get back to the bank rate decision made today, holding steady as expected. But there are still some potential challenges ahead and one more rate decision before 2023 is done. Take a listen now to the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem. With clearer evidence that monetary policy is working, Governing Council's collective judgment was that we could be patient and hold the policy rate at 5%. We will continue to assess whether monetary policy is sufficiently restrictive to restore price stability, and we will monitor risks closely. Today's decision also reflected our best efforts to balance the risks of over and under tightening. We don't want to cool the economy more than necessary, but we don't want Canadians to have to continue to live with elevated inflation either and we cannot let high inflation become entrenched in the economy. Well, we're now joined by Pedro Antunes, Chief Economist at the Conference Board of Canada. Pedro, good to see you. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. So the bank has decided to hold its overnight rate at 5%. Uh, obviously, I think that will come as good news for many debt and mortgage holders. Uh, but is that good news for business? Well, uh, you know, I, th I think higher rates generally are, are good for banks. <laughs> the chartered banks uh, do do earn uh, a little bit more when uh, when interest rates uh, are higher. But uh, you know, in general, businesses are feeling the the crunch of es essentially higher prices, just like households. Uh, they're certainly feeling a lot of uh, cost pressures from wages coming up, uh, and uh, you know, uh, businesses borrow as well as do households. So I think this is uh, taking its toll as well on uh, you know essentially business investment and the cost of funds for businesses. So I don't think this is a good news story uh, with large, therefore, for the business sector in Canada. As because the rate, again, being held, not coming down. But, you know, part of the reason for holding the rate is uh, the argument that past policy decisions are still making their way through the economy. What exactly is the bank watching out for? Because there is one more decision to be made before the end of the year. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think that, uh, as you mentioned, the, the fact that rates are now at very high levels are well above where the bank considers. So, you know, again, we don't quite know what a normal rate in, is anymore, but uh, certainly the bank had made, made, made mention that a neutral rate would be between 2 and 3%. So we're far above that on the short term. This means that uh, the break is still firmly on the economy. It's having the impacts, as we just discussed, on households and businesses. And we're seeing the, su uh, the success of that uh, in the sense that we uh, have seen uh, the e economic growth slowing in the second quarter it was slightly negative uh, certainly we're tracking for the third quarter to be slightly negative or essentially flat so uh, we're slowing the economy uh, and the hope is that we'll continue to see inflation heading down that downward path uh, and uh, you know essentially heading towards price stability the, you know I think the bank is is very concerned about a lot of the uh, essentially a lot of the external pressures that are still very real uh, and they made certainly a lot of mention around uh, you know some of the risks uh, that could see oil prices for instance come higher uh, interesting you say that because I was going to ask about oil prices because obviously the, the bank also says yes oil is something that we need to be wary of but they're also wary about the conflict between Israel and Hamas as potential uh, potentially complicating the, the picture how might those actually affect the, the last rate decision of this year in December 
Well, uh, you know, I, I still think we're uh, we're probably going to see the bank hold unless something uh, really kind of drastic happens. But uh, again, you know, we saw this essentially in, in 2022 when uh, the war, uh, well, when Russia invaded Ukraine and we saw a massive commodity price shock uh, that affected not just oil, but uh, affected all com- a lot of commodity prices and led to another layer being put on already hot inflation uh, across the world, around the world. Uh, this is a similar situation here. I mean, if this war that's going on in the Middle East expands beyond the the, the, the current uh, the current conflict, uh, we could easily see and markets, in fact, have already been very nervous, uh, and we've seen that affecting uh, kind of oil prices on the up and down. So, if there's something here that spreads beyond those borders, uh, we could certainly see another certainly an oil price shock. And let's not forget, oil is a, you know essentially an input into a lot of the production processes across the world. The supply chain is key input. Uh, and it also affects uh, transportation costs and most directly for households, uh, gasoline prices. So all of these things would, you know, you know, potentially add another, how should I say, another layer of inflation to uh, the battle that we're, that the central bank is trying to uh, is trying to win here, trying to get those inflationary pressures down. Yeah, you know, and as you say that, I, I, there is a statement that was made uh, in, in the release from the Bank of Canada governor today, and this is what it said, quote, the bank's preferred measures of core inflation show little downward momentum. What exactly is being referred to here? Is that concerning? Well, the core measures um, really look at what's happening domestically. They try to exclude very volatile items like food prices and uh, you know energy prices, for instance. Uh, they also try to exclude things like uh, tax changes and other and other measures. So essentially, the problem here is that core inflation is being driven by kind of the service sector side of the economy, and we know that wages are coming up quite strongly. I think the bank is very concerned that wages you know, essentially running at 5%, that's not in line with a 2% inflation environment. Uh, So we've seen, despite the fact that we've seen top line inflation up and down, and in fact, in the last couple of measures, it's come down in part because of uh, kind of easing easing prices for for durable goods and for for oil as well. when we look at the kind of the underlying measures, the underlying domestic wage pressures, uh, they're still kind of running uh, well above where the bank uh, would feel comfortable with. So this is, um, I think, in the messaging that the bank is sending, this is the the, the sense that we're going to have this kind of longer battle to get inflation core and, and otherwise top line inflation down to that 2% target range. And the bank, I think, is trying to prepare us for that. Okay, so so longer than perhaps most people would like. And I think that really is ultimately the big question for many people. When do the rates start going back down? Because based on what the bank had to say today, it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime before 2025. Yeah, I mean, I think still this is uh, this would be kind of the good news scenario in that we slowly get inflation back down to that two percent range. It does take a long time, but we don't have you know kind of a massive downturn in the economy, uh, and that plays out in the, in this kind of soft landing scenario that I think most forecasters are, are looking uh, are looking at. Uh, and and so in a way, it's kind of a good news. It's kind of a slow, stable uh, kind of trek to that two uh, percent range, but. 
but it is going to take and continue to take its toll, as we just discussed on businesses and on households. Uh, we know that most households have not yet felt the pinch of essentially renewing their mortgages with these higher rates. And in fact, only about a third have, have, have seen the impact of that as yet. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of, I think, further pain to be felt, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, well, not good news to end it on, but of course, it was good to know uh, the information as it is. Uh, Pedro, thank you for this. Appreciate the time. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. And that is our program for this Wednesday evening. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. I'm Michael Serapio. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow night. But up next, Esteban avec l'Essentiel.